Revelation chapter number one. Tonight we're going to talk about Ephesus, uh, our first church, and uh, I've entitled it the cold ortho- <coughs> the cold Orthodox Church. And uh, Revelation chapter number one is where we'll start, and then uh, verse number nineteen, and then we'll jump into uh, chapter number two. Uh, Revelation 1, verse 19, the Bible says, Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. Verse number, or chapter number 2, verse number 1. Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil, And thou hast tried them, which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast I labored and hast not fainted. Verse number four, nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. But this thou hast, and that thou hatest the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh, I will give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So tonight we're going to look at the church of Ephesus. We're going to start right at the top of your outline. The key to interpreting the book of Revelation is found in the basic outline in chapter 1 and verse number 19. After John's vision, he was commanded to write in three tenses. The first tense obviously being the past. The things which thou hast seen. He said, write these things down. So first of all, he says, write about the past, the things which thou hast seen. The second thing he said to write about is the present. Write about the present. These are the things which are. This is right out of chapter number 1 and verse number 19. Write about the past which thou hast seen. Write about the present, the things which are. And then write about the future, the things which shall be hereafter. That was John's. Uh, 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 commission. That was what God told him to do. He said, listen, you have, you have a job here. You're to write the things from the past, write the things that are present, and write the things which shall be hereafter. And that's going to be significant as we jump into talking about the seven churches. Because you say, Pastor, I thought the book of Revelation was all about the future. Well, actually, when we start talking about the churches, we're going to examine and learn um, that, uh, will you go Mike, will you go kick both of those fans on for me? Or Jessica, okay. Um, you're going to learn that, that as we study the churches, that some of the things that happened during those eras are actually things that happened in the past. And then as we look at the present, and then as we look at the things which shall be hereafter. The things which thou hast seen was the vision of the glorified Christ in Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 to 18. This introduced the main subject of the book, and we've talked about this, and it's just important to me that we keep reiterating it, that the main subject of the book is not prophecy. The main subject of the book is Jesus Christ. And uh, that is what we are looking to. That's what we're looking for, is we're looking for Jesus Christ in the pages 
of the book of Revelation. The things which are referred to the letters to the seven churches addressed in chapters number two and in chapters number three. And then the churches are significant uh, for several reasons. The churches are significant for several reasons. First, at the time John wrote, they were actual churches in real towns in Asia Minor. Um, I've already had some of you come and talk to me uh, about the seven churches. And uh, I'm glad that you're jumping ahead of me and you're getting excited about the things that we are studying, which is great. And you said to me, Pastor, uh, I've done some geographical study and uh, these churches uh, don't exist. That is a true statement. They do not exist today. And as a matter of fact, as we study the book of Revelation, we'll talk about it tonight. I'm actually going to show you a picture in a little bit of what Ephesus looks like today. And literally, they are ruins. It is ruins. And, and the reason is, is because these churches decided or, or, or got it in their mind that serving God and doing what God had called them to do and what Paul had taught them and others had taught them, they decided that it was no longer important to them and they forsook it. Can I tell you tonight, listen to me church, North Point Baptist Church will cease to exist if we stop doing what God has told us to do. History tells us that. History tells us that as we look at the word of God, we have to stay on point with what God wants us to do so that God will continue to bless. And whenever we begin to put things in front of God, whenever we begin to uh, uh, think that the church and how many people we have in the church and the person that's in leadership at the church, and we start looking at all these things and we begin to build up these idols before God, God could care less about all that stuff. The thing that's most important to God is that he is magnified and he is worshipped. And so if not, if we're not careful It'll become ruins, just like the churches that we will study uh, in, in our passes. The churches at Rome, Jerusalem, and Antioch were surely more prominent and larger than most of these churches. Only two of the seven churches are previously mentioned in the New Testament. The church of Ephesus, of course, in the book of Ephesians, chapter 1 and verse number 1, Ephesus is mentioned. And then the church at Laodicea, and we find that in Colossians chapter 2 and verse number 1. The other five churches are not previously mentioned in the New Testament. So we had the church at Ephesus, and we had the church of Laodicea. Those are the ones that are previously mentioned. These churches were probably chosen because they collectively represented all the churches of John's day, as well as in subsequent generations. He, the, the churches were chosen because they represented uh, the churches of that day and they represent the churches of today. And you'll see that as we begin to work through each church. The characteristics of one particular church of these seven may seem to dominate in a particular generation, but churches similar to any of the seven can be found during any period in history. And so we're going to look at those tonight and, and, and really examine the historical side of where we're at. Second, these letters were written to all the churches of all times. And I want to stop here for a moment because I think this is important. The, the word of God that you hold in front of you, everything that is taught and preached out of that Bible, that word of God that, hold, that you hold in front of you, is as much applicable today as it was when it was originally written. That includes the Old Testament and the New Testament. 
I, I think sometimes we shy away from teaching and preaching out of the Old Testament uh, because of the law and because of all that stuff. There is the, every passage of, uh, in the Word of God can be made applicable today because just like the book of Revelation, it was written to all churches of all times. Just as the letters to the church at Rome, uh, the Romans and the church at Corinth, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, were originally written to a specific local church, they are also intended for churches everywhere throughout history. And that's why it's so important that we apply it. And, and, and listen to me today, please don't get mad at what I'm about to say, but it's so important that we lay a good foundation before we get to Revelation chapter number 4. Because when we hit Revelation chapter number four, we're going to take off. And, and if you have not, if we have not laid a good foundation before we get there, my fear is, is that by the time we arrive at Revelation chapter four and verse number one, if you do not have a good foundation, you're going to be lost. This is what I want you to know, is that when we look at the book of Revelation, that this book was intended for churches everywhere throughout history. And what is beginning to happen in our society, and please don't get mad at me, uh, but what's beginning to happen in our society is we are beginning to change the word of God because we do not think it's applicable to the churches today. We are rewriting it, and, and dare I say, we are paraphrasing it. And we're saying that we need to make it applicable. Listen, my Bible tells me, and any other Bible that you pick up will tell you, that my God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He changeth not. That's right. So this is the difference. And I, I, I'm, I'm cautioning myself, but the truth of the matter is, is if I don't tell you the truth, nobody else will. The reason that people are having to change it is because they do not have the Holy Spirit within them to discern it. If we have the Holy Spirit within us, then we can discern it. You say, Pastor, but, but there are hard things in the Word of God. Listen to me tonight. We're going to get to places in the book of Revelation, and I'm going to stand up in front of you, and I'm going to go, well, this is what I think. And then I'm going to say, this is what this person thinks, and this person thinks, and this person thinks. And when I'm all done saying that, this is what I'm going to say. When we get to heaven, ask Jesus. You know why? Because the Bible says that some things are a mystery. They're a mystery. But just because something is a mystery doesn't mean that we have to change it. Doesn't mean we have to change it. We just have to learn how to allow the Holy Spirit to help us apply it to our lives. So it's applicable today. It should be noted that at the close of each letter is the exhortation to hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Therefore, it is, it is obvious each letter, though originally written to a particular church, is to be read and heeded by all the churches. You saw that as we looked in Revelation uh, uh, with our church of Ephesus in verse number 7. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He says that to every single church, all seven of them, as it concludes to their, uh, their letter. Third, each church definitely represents a particular type of Christian. And as we move through all of this, we can all find ourselves in one of the seven churches. As we start looking at, at, at what they are condemned for, what they are commended for, we are going to be able to find ourselves somewhere 
in these local churches. Now, this is the next part that we get to. Uh, the fourth uh, uh, significance of these churches is much debated. The only reason I'm bringing this up uh, tonight is because several of you have spoken to me about this. And so I just want to make it clear uh, 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 concerning this passage of Scripture. The fourth significance of these churches is much debated. But many believe that these seven churches represent successive stages of church history. Uh, This is where we talk about the word dispensationalism. They believe that starting with the church of Ephesus and as we move through the seven churches, uh, that, that there is a significance of church history and, and, and we find the churches throughout these stages. Now this view holds that the spiritual characteristic Christ finds in his churches form a model of church history from the first century to the end of the age. Now you say, Pastor, uh, how do you feel about that? Listen to me. Um, whether this represents church history, whether it represents stages, whether it represents dispensationalism, it really does not matter because what matters is, is that we just take the word of God, apply it to where we're at, and then let God do the rest of it. We can sit here and debate about tons of things in the book of Revelation and say, well, I believe it's this way, and I believe it's this way, and I believe it's this way. But the honest truth is, is that we have to take the word of God for what it says. A lot of men are taking the word of God and putting their own thought process into it. And I'm going to tell you tonight that I'm going to do my very best never to take my own ideas and ideology and try to apply it to the word of God. Rather, I want to take the word of God and apply it to my ideas and my ideology. Because it works out a whole lot better that way. All right? We will begin our study of the seven churches with the church at Ephesus. So number one, the city. The city. I'm going to share some things with you that maybe you've never heard of. Uh, through each of these cities uh, that we'll study. Maybe it'll be of interest to you, I'm not sure, uh, but I thought they were some uh, interesting facts. Uh, The Bible says in uh, chapter 2 and verse number 1, Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, The person sending the letter is Christ. And we realize that. John is simply the scribe who writes it down as this uh, book, as with all scripture, is inspired by the very breath of God. And so, unto the angel of the church. What do, who do we say the angel was? Do you remember? The messenger. Unto the pastor. Or unto the minister uh, of the church of Ephesus writes. So he's writing to the whole church, but he's writing it to the messenger to be read to the church. At the time this letter was written, Ephesus was a flourishing city in an excellent commercial location on the western side of Asia Minor. I gave you a map the very first time that we got together, and it showed you uh, where all of these churches were. If you don't have that and would like it, uh, just let me know. Uh, It had a top-notch harbor and was known as a major marketplace for world trade. Since the harbor could accommodate the largest ships in the world, Ephesus grew to become one of the largest and wealthiest cities in the world. This is very important to note as we begin the study of the church of Ephesus. The church of Ephesus was one of the largest and wealthiest cities in the world. So this this book or this, this thought or this letter was written to the church of Ephesus, the most wealth, one of the wealthiest and largest cities in the world. This is what I want you to do. Look at me. I don't normally give homework, but here's your homework. You ready? I want to write it down because I'm not like a teacher at school. I won't give it again at the end. Um, Here's your homework. I'm kidding with you. 
After we get done telling you all about the city of Ephesus, I want you to go back and read the book of Ephesians. Because I think that once you realize what kind of city Ephesus really was, when you read the book of Ephesians, it's going to take a whole new light to you. Um, because I'm going to share with you some things that, uh, as I was studying and I was learning, things that I didn't, that, that I didn't have a clue about, about uh, the city of Ephesus. And I went back and as I was studying it, I took uh, 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 my Bible and I opened up the book of Ephesians and I read the very short book of Ephesians. And it really brought to light why Paul was addressing some of the issues that he was addressing uh, with the church at Ephesus. So Ephesus became one of the largest and wealthiest cities in the world. Ephesus was also known, or excuse me, was home of one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Temple of Diana. Temple of, not, not Miss Diana. Um, the Temple of Diana. Uh, it is, uh, the, there is a temple of Diana of the Greek Artemis is what it's actually called. Uh, it is no longer in existence. It's part of the ruins of Ephesus. Um, Diana was believed to be the mother goddess of the world. The Greeks dedicated the city to her, and in the latter part of the 4th century, they erected for her the greatest temple and the most extravagant and expensive temple in the whole world that has ever to date been built. It is one of, or used to be, one of the seven wonders of the world. Now, constructed of glittering Persian marble. It was 420 feet long, which is about one and a half blocks. It was 260 feet wide. It had 130 hand-carved columns, each standing about 60 feet tall. 37 of those columns were studded with jewels and gold. Visitors from around the world were dazzled by this temple. It was a sight to see, and people would come just to see it. Here is the picture of the temple of Diana, and I know that this is not going to serve it justice by any stretch of the imagination, but um, go home and Google. um, Just be careful what you Google, because um, the uh, Diana was the fertility goddess, might not want to do it with your children around, all right? Um, but this is one of the seven wonders of the world. Just, just Google the Temple of Diana in Greek Artemis, and you'll find all kind of um, pictures of this temple and how gorgeous it really um, was. Diana was the goddess of fertility and re- uh, reproduction, so the worship of Diana was immoral beyond description. The temple had scores of priestesses who were nothing more than temple prostitutes, who aided in the sexual worship of Diana. It was immoral beyond anything that you can imagine. One of the major commercial enterprises in Ephesus was the production of silver images of Diana. Now, how many of you have ever been out of the country? Even on a cruise? Been out of the country? Okay. If you go out of the country, there's something that's very interesting. The first time I left the United States of America, I got on a plane and I flew 18 hours uh, to the country of Romania. And I landed in Romania. We got all settled and we began to uh, serve on a mission team and all that kind of stuff. Well, one day uh, we went to Castle Pele. And uh, this castle is just 
I mean, it is gorgeous. Like, I couldn't afford the step going into this place. I mean, it was just unbelievable. When you get in there, like, it's so magnificent that they charge you $25 per person just to take pictures. That's not the entrance fee. That's just if you want to take pictures. And um, it's just, I mean, it's gorgeous. Well, before we ever got there, there were all kinds of people along the path. Do you know what they were doing? They were selling stuff. And they were selling all kind of replicas of this castle and the things that were inside of it. I was talking to the, one of the missionaries I was with and I was asking, how lucrative is this business? He said, well, let me just give you an idea. Because I went and bought one. He said, let me give you an idea. You paid, and he told me how much I paid. You don't need to know. Uh, how much I paid for this little piece of thing from Romania. He said, if you look at that, he said, I, I think I paid like American money. I paid like 15 or $20 for this little thing. He said, it costs that person to make that about 22 cents. He, this is what he said. I, this, this is what he said. He said, and he will sell, that person there will sell probably close, close to 10000 a month. Very lucrative business. Well, that didn't just start there. It started way back when, like at the church of Ephesus. These guys were producing silver images of Diana. And people came by the thousands from all over the world to the temple where peddlers sold these images as good luck charms to keep people healthy and to protect them while they traveled. So it was a very lucrative thing. Things changed for them, though. And this is why we take the word of God and compare it with each other. And we're going to do that tonight. Paul had visited Ephesus a little more than 40 years before the book of Revelation was written in Acts chapter number 18 and, and chapter number 19. He stayed there about three years, and during a, his mis, uh, ministry, a revival broke out. Well, that sounds great. But that was a problem. Because if I remind you, Ephesus thought Diana was the sexual god. And immorality was happening everywhere. Well, revival broke out in all of Ephesus. And guess what beginning to ha began to happen? People began to get saved. People's lives began to change. And so all of the businesses that were uh, making all of this money off of this temple, it began to go down. That was a problem. Because this was their livelihood. And uh, the Bible says in Acts chapter 19 and verse number 20, so mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. It was a serious revival that was breaking out there. Due to the revival breaking out in Ephesus in the book of Acts, we see that the worship of Diana was greatly affected and so were those that prospered in preparing the statutes. Take your Bibles with me real fast to Acts chapter number 19. Acts chapter number 19 you say, Pastor, I, I didn't realize this was there. Well, the honest truth is, is that until we really start comparing Scripture with Scripture, it's amazing how much we can make things come alive. Acts chapter number 19, look at me in verse number 24. Acts chapter 19 and verse number 24. Do you remember when we studied, just a few weeks ago, we were studying the book of Colossians, and I shared with you that a riot broke out, and Paul had to hide himself in the temple the reason that the riot had broke out, it was in Ephesus. And the reason the riot had broke out is because of Paul's preaching. And they began to riot because they were losing money. And they were getting mad at Paul. Look what, um, in Acts chapter number 19, verse number 24. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, 
which made silver shrines for who? Diana brought no small gain unto the craftsmen, whom he called together with the workmen of like occupation and said, Sirs, you know that by this craft we have our wealth. Moreover, you see and hear that not alone at Ephesus, but almost throughout all of Asia, this Paul hath persuaded and turned away much people, saying that they be no gods which are made with hands. In other words, he was, he was preaching on idol worship. So that not only this, our craft is in danger to be set at naught, but also that the temple of the great goddess Diana should be despised and her magnificence should be destroyed, whom all of Asia and the world worshipeth. And when they heard these sayings, They were full of what? Wrath. And cried out saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Here it comes. And the whole city was filled with confusion. And having caught Gaius and Articus, men of Macedonia, Paul's companions in travel, they rushed with one accord into the theater. They They had to get out of there. They had to get out of Ephesus because of the riots that were breaking out, all because of a revival. And uh, that's what was happening here as you, as again, now we, we flip back to the book of Revelation and we see why this is being wrote to them because of the, the predicament and the situation that they're in. The riots that broke out in the city because of the revival and because of Paul's message uh, forced Paul's departure. But the results of his three years of ministry continued to have an impact on Ephesus. Number two, the commendation. The commendation. You guys have got to stop getting me on rabbit trails because we got to hurry. Um, the commendation. I'm kidding. The commendation. Uh, chapter 2, verse 2 and 3, and verse number 6, you see they are commended for certain things. There was much about this church to commend. First, the Lord praises them for their works and their labor. I love this. The Greek word translated labor means to toil to the point of what? Exhaustion. To the point of exhaustion. They worked so hard that they were exhausted. The Christians there in Ephesus, uh, in the Ephesian church, put their very hearts and souls into their service to Christ, even to the point of exhaustion. And God was commending them for that. He was praising them for doing that. This church was also commended for its patience or for its endurance, as well as for its discernment and rejection of false teachers. Um, uh, the church was, you know, obviously a lot of things going on around them, and they were commended that they did not buy into the false teaching that was happening. In addition, in chapter 2 and verse number 3, they are commended for not growing weary in the Lord's work. And in chapter 2 and verse number 6, for their hatred of the Nicolaitans. Now, um, just in, in, in thought process, because I know as we read these passages, you may look at something and you say, I don't know what the Nicolaitans are and other things, and so I try to make sure we hit it all. The identity of this group is uncertain. However, some believe the name refers to the exaltation uh, of clergy over the laity. This is concluded because of the uh, origin of the word meaning laity conqueror, meaning Nicolaitans means laity conqueror. So some people believe that they were um, uh, making themselves and putting themselves on, the, on a uh, pedestal 
the clergy was. Others believe them to be the followers of the heretic named Nicholas, and you can go home and study who that is. And still other believe it is the heresy of compromise associated with the doctrine of Balaam that you'll find in verses 14 and 15. However, no one knows for sure who the Nicolaitans are, but we do know that they rejected them. Thus it can be concluded the church of uh, Ephesus had faithfully served the Lord since its inception by Paul more than 40 years earlier. From these facts alone, one would think this church was a model and completely pleased the Lord. However, this was not the case. Why? Because we see that there was condemnation. Chapter 2 and verse number 4 Chapter 2 and verse number 4, the Bible says, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast, thou hast left thy first love. They've left their first love. Even though the church at Ephesus looked great from the outside, they were of sound doctrine. They could spot sin. They seemed to be doing all the right things. However, our Lord's all-penetrating eyes saw through the sham and recognized immediately that thou hast left Thy first love. They've left their first love. Who was their first love? Christ. They left their first love. You say, now wait a minute, pastor. I'm really confused. Aren't they a church? Like, isn't it like the church, like, everybody loves God in the church and everything's great? Here's what I want to say. And, and, and I want to, again, be cautious about how I say this. If we're not careful, when we begin to do things for God, and people begin to lift us up, they begin to tell us how wonderful we are. They begin to tell us about how a great job we're doing. They begin to tell us about all the things that that uh, we're doing right and how that, that, that uh, you know, we can trust them and we can turn to them and, and uh, we know uh, them and we know everything about them and they're just, they're just great and wonderful. Unfortunately, what can begin to happen is we can begin to swell up. We can begin to get big heads. We can begin to say, oh, you know what? I can do this all by myself. I don't need the Lord's help, Right? We can begin to say, hey, it's okay, I got this. What, read my Bible and pray? Oh, please. Please, I know the Bible. And pray? I got this. Just ask me. I know how to do it. And when we begin to get to that point in our lives, we will leave our first love and begin to love ourselves. That's where the church of Ephesus was. They thought, you know what? We don't need God in this church. Now, I don't know how that figures into the equation. But the honest truth is, is that if we're not cautious and we're not careful, we will begin to drift away from God and he will begin to be uninvited into the church. And here's the sad part. It's not even realized. Until God pulls the rug out from underneath it. And it gets exposed. But here's the great thing about God. God has, we talked about last week, those eyes, those fiery eyes. Which means those all penetrating eyes. He sees everything. When nobody else can see it, God sees it. 
God can look way deep down past the facade, past uh, the flesh, and he can get way down inside the heart. And he knows my heart. He knows who I am. And eventually, eventually, the corruptness that's inside of me, if I've left my first love or we've left our first love, it will eventually spew out because that's just the way it works. So we have to be very cautious about that, that we don't lose or leave our first love. Since it was just over 40 years since Paul had started the church, probably most of the Ephesian Christians were now second generation believers. And though they had retained their sound doctrine and faithful service, it had all become mechanical and routine. It had all become just mechanical and routine. And, 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 and this, is what, um, th- this is what I really, as a pastor, caution against, is that our church does not become mechanical and routine. You say, what does that mean? That means that we wake up on Sunday mornings and we come to church. And we don't come to church to be fed. We don't come to church uh, uh, to fellowship. We come to church because we're afraid the preacher might call us and ask us where we're at. (laughs) Or he might show up on our front door and look into our window. No. Um, or, or we come just because there's someone there that we want to see. Or we come because uh, we're having dinner. Or we're coming for whatever. Listen. All of the things that we do around here, uh, uh, all the ministries that we have, all the, all the and I, excuse the term I'm about to use, but all the perks that we have at North Point Baptist Church is not the reason we have church. And if it's not careful, it will become routine, it will become mechanical. If you're teaching Sunday school, you're involved in kids ministry or youth ministry or whatever the case might be, you're involved in those things. Don't let it become mechanical. Don't let it become Sunday morning I wake up and, oh, there's a book over there somewhere. It's, it's underneath all this stuff. Oh, there it is. And you open it up and go, oh, it's Jonah in the whale. I'm good. Because can I tell you, nobody else may be able to see through you, but those 30 kids that are looking back at you and you're stumbling over everything that you're saying, they're looking at you going, hey, how am I going to be when I become an adult when it's my turn to teach a group of kids? Do they love me? Are they investing time in me? Or are they waking up and picking up a book? Same thing teaching adults. Same thing with any type of ministry that we do. It should not become mechanical and it should not become routine. The Lord, and, and this is may where I have to stop tonight. The Lord not, uh, uh, wants not only our heads and our hands, but he wants our hearts. Did you catch that? He wants our hearts. You say, Pastor, you've been, you've been talking about serving and serving and serving. That's our hands. That's our heads. I get that. But I want God to have your heart before you put your hands into it. I want God to have your heart before you put your head into it. So how do you lose your first love? Well, the truth is, it's usually a gradual process that involves us becoming complacent and apathetic in our Christian life and making a routine out of our church attendance and service. Or... When our first love is replaced and we do not even realize it's happening. So we have to be very cautious that we do not allow uh, to lose our first love. Number four, the command. I'm going to try to hurry. The command. Chapter 2 and verse number 5. The Bible says this. Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen and repent and do the first works. The command is basically this. To remember to repent, and to return. Most of us remember that warm relationship with Christ when we uh, first became Christians. 
then sometimes as the years go by, we get all the right doctrines and all the right mechanics of the Christian life. We figured out how to put our Christian makeup on. We figured out how to carry our Bible. We figured out how to dress so that we look like a Christian. We become mechanical in it. Then, sometimes as the years go by, we get all these mechanics, but in the process, our love for Christ becomes cold. When this happens, we must follow these three R's. And I've already shared them with you, but here they are. First of all, remember. Remember. What are we to remember, Pastor? We're to remember our first love. The Bible says in Psalm 105.5, Remember his marvelous works that he hath done, his wonders and the judgments of his mouth. So we're to remember. The second thing we're supposed to do is repent. That means to turn. The, the Lord wanted the Ephesians, to say, the Ephesians to say, Lord, I'm sorry. I want that first love again. This is exactly what every Christian must do that has fallen away from Christ. We must repent. And then thirdly, we must return. The Ephesians were to go back and do what they did from the re, or for the reasons they did them in the beginning. They were to return. And I would dare say that every Christian in this room, if you have fallen away, this is the answer. To remember, to repent, and to return. Remember what Christ did for you on Calvary. Repent of where you are at right now and turn from it. Uh, and then, excuse me, and then return from it and, and, and get back to where it is that you've fallen in love with God. You say, Pastor, will God accept me? Will God take me? First John chapter 1 and verse number 9. For if we confess our sins, he is... Are you asleep? He's what? Faithful and he's just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 9 is not to the lost person. It is to the Christian. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and he's just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He will take us back. We just have to return. The consequences of not remembering, repenting, and returning are found in Revelation chapter 2 and verse number 5. Look what it says. Or else I will come unto thee quickly, and I will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. He said, I will take you out, is what the Lord said. You've got a choice to make. Man, it's 8 o'clock. The Bible says that there is, and I want to be very cautious because I, I don't have a lot of time. The Bible says that there is a sin unto death. How many have ever heard that? A sin unto death. I've been uh, pastoring now uh, since I was 19 years old. I'm 35 now. And, and I've had numerous people sit in my office with devastating things and questions. And probably one of the greatest questions I get, especially from parents, is what is the sin unto death, pastor? What does that mean? What does it mean to have a sin unto death? And do you believe that people can actually sin unto death? Well, first of all, I believe the word of God. So I have to believe that there's a sin unto death. But the thing that I don't know is what that particular sin is. But as you study that passage of scripture, I truly believe that the sin unto death is different for every person. 
I don't believe it is one particular sin. I believe what happens is, is we begin to push God away and push God away and push God away to the point to where we as Christians, because it's, it's talking to Christians, to where we as Christians are causing more harm to Christianity than we are help to Christianity. And I believe at that very moment is when the sin unto death happens. It's when we begin to cause harm to the word of God and to God. And so here's where we're at with the church of Ephesus. God was saying to them, this is the last straw. If you do not return and repent, I am going to put your candlestick out. And I am going to remove you. And that was the consequences. Here's the command and I'm done. The Ephesians apparently did not repent because Ephesus no longer exists. In this city where Paul once labored night and day for three years, no testimony or light of Jesus can now be seen. Mohammedism has taken over that part of the world, and Ephesus is nothing more than a heap of ruins. This is what the city of Ephesus looks like today. You go from this amazing temple of Diana to this. If you go home and Google Temple of Diana, Greek Artemis, you will find pictures of what the um, actual temple looks like right now. This is the back side of it. It is literally, Ephesus is literally in ruins. Do you remember what I told you at the very beginning of this? They were the largest and wealthiest city, not in Asia Minor, in the world. The comfort, here's the comfort. Chapter two and verse number seven. Here it is. He that hath an ear, let him hear. And each of the seven letters, everyone with an ear is called upon to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is a clear indication the message was not exclusively for the local church being addressed, but for all Christians as well as lost persons. The comfort. The overcomers in chapter two and verse number seven are not the spiritually elite that some teach. I do not believe that there are greater Christians than others. Look at me. I do not believe that there are greater Christians than others. I do not believe that I can be more saved than I am today. I don't think it can happen. I can get closer to God, but that does not make me elite. That does not put me up on a pedestal. You know what that actually does? That just means I'm doing what God has asked me to do. It's obedience. When we begin to study the word of God and have a desire to learn, all that means is that we're obeying. It does not mean that we have elite status. There is no pastor in this world that is higher than you. Amen, preacher. That's good right there. There, there is no one, I, I don't care what radio program you listen to, what TV program you listen to, the, the only difference is in people in this world is who has decided to obey and who has decided to be half-hearted about their obedience. That's it. There's no elite status. So the overcomers are not the spiritually. Instead, the Bible clearly tells us who they are. First John uh, 5, 5. Who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. How many of you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? How many of you believe that you're saved here tonight? Guess what you are? You're the overcomers. You've made it. You have made it. You are the overcomers. Sin excluded the human race from the tree of life. And that's what it talks about at the very end of our passage in verse number 7. Beginning in Genesis chapter 3. However, when people turn to Christ... 
in love and invite him into their hearts, Jesus will allow them to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. This is it. What are you doing with Christ today? Has Christianity become mechanical and routine in your life? Have you left your first love? Can I encourage you today? Return to him today and renew that relationship and rekindle your love for Christ.